this evening I'm going to talk about uh, a group of diseases which are some of the most common diseases uh, that afflict humans uh, anywhere. And those are the diseases of the lung and also some very dangerous diseases, although much rarer, which are the diseases of the heart. The historically interesting thing about diseases of the lung, infectious diseases of the lung, is not actually that there are so many of them, but in my view that there are so few. And I'd like just to think before we start on the infections about what's actually in your lungs uh, on which all of us depend. The surface area of your lung is roughly the same size as a tennis court. Extraordinarily large. It's got uh, over 200 kilometres of airways, uh, and at the end, it's got blind endings, which have got incredibly thin cells because they've got to have oxygen going across them from the air into the blood and carbon dioxide back. And it's got to pump through uh, about 11,000 litres a day. That's just if you're doing ordinary things. Uh, for example, uh, this Wimbledon uh, major tennis uh, match, uh, they'd be pumping a lot more. So it's actually amazing, really, given that enormous uh, surface area open to the outside, we have so few infections of the lungs. And the reason for that is that the lungs have, despite being open, multiple layers of defence. Uh, they have the epiglottis, which is something which closes off when you swallow to make sure food goes one way and then air goes the other, when that occasionally doesn't happen, you know about it. Uh, it has the cough reflex, so if something settles in the wrong place, uh, you cough it up. Very importantly, it has what's called the mucociliary escalator. This is a, li a lining of mucus, as the name implies, that these hair cells in the lung beat up the lung all the time, moving things up so you can actually swallow them or cough them out. And it has a large number of bits of the immune system, including, including proteins and several different cells and antibodies which defend it. So it has multiple layers of defence. Nevertheless, it is very large and very open. Now, within the lung, uh, there are, because there's a large uh, surface area, uh, um, there are multiple ways that you can actually have infections, but the majority of the things I'm going to talk about are what are broadly termed lower respiratory tract infections, which are ones which are not just in the throat, like uh, getting a cold, for example, but these are ones that settle in the lung itself, either in the bronchus uh, or, more commonly, lower down uh, with pneumonia. But you can also have the lungs affected by infections by other routes. Infections can cause, or indeed get into, the gap between the lung and the chest wall, something called an effusion, uh, and it can also, they can also affect the motor system, which allows you to breathe. So there are a variety of ways lungs can, can uh, be affected, but the majority of them are the lower respiratory tract uh, infections. If you look around the world, uh, lung infections, lower respiratory tract infections, are in the top 10 causes of death everywhere in the world. In the poorest parts of the world places that are still developing, uh, it is by some distance the number one killer, particularly of children. Uh, and that's illustrated here on the left, but also important in most uh, developing countries uh, are tuberculosis, which is another major cause of lung disease. But even if you go to the highest income settings, uh, here on the right, uh, lung uh, lower respiratory tract infections are still in the top 10 causes of death. 
Uh, and uh, you also have problems with chronic obstructive airways disease, a smoking-driven disease, uh, disease group, uh, which I've talked about in a previous lecture. Let's start off with pneumonia. Now, pneumonias can be caused by bacteria, by viruses, and very occasionally by fungi. But the majority of uh, those who die uh, in most settings will die of bacterial pneumonia. It's very common. There are up to, there are, uh, are up to 250 million cases uh, a year, according to the WHO. And in the era before antibiotics and when uh, the uh, overall nutrition and development of every country was uh, less good, um, uh, it could kill people at any stage of their lives. And in fact, if you read any uh, novel from the 18th or 19th century, uh, from time to time, someone will die of a pneumonia. It's a, it's a classic kind of uh, plot uh, development, or nearly die and be rescued by the hero or heroine. Now, uh, deaths tend to occur in the very young, the very old, the very poor, and those who've got immunosuppression due to a variety of reasons. It's not to say you cannot die if you don't, not in one of those groups, but that is where the majority of the burden of disease now is. Now, other than age and poverty, there are several other risk factors for pneumonia. Uh, smoking, both active and passive, increases your risks two to four times, so there's a significant increase. It damages mucociliary escalator, it causes uh, inflammation. Air pollution, particularly particulate matter, can have a significant risk, but also ca so can other uh, chronic health conditions, both of the lung, things like cystic fibrosis, which we've talked about as a group before, uh, and also things like heart and liver disease. So several things can increase your risk. And if you have a weakened immune system, for example, with HIV AIDS, uh, or with recent chemotherapy, or some forms of medication following transplant, you're particularly at risk. So these are additional risks which can lead to pneumonia. Let's start off in a high-income country, and I'm going to take the UK because we're here and because it's a very typical high-income country in this sense. These are data from the British Lung Foundation. And if you look at all uh, the deaths in the UK, roughly 20% of the deaths, one in five, is due to lung disease. And of the lung disease, roughly uh, a quarter uh, is due to pneumonia. So here in the UK, this is still a significant and will continue to be a significant cause of mortality. But in the UK, in a high-income setting, the great majority of those deaths from pneumonia will be in older people. And on the left here, what I've got is a graph over time, hasn't, doesn't really change very much, which looks at deaths from, or it's called cases of pneumonia per 100,000, so with a denominator, this line here is the rate in people over the age of 80. The next line down is people between 70 and 80. Then running neck and neck, people between 60 and 70 and children under the age of five, roughly the same. And then really the risk in all the other groups is much lower. So this is a risk in the very old and the very young. And of course what this means, because we are an ageing society, is that rates of pneumonia are inevitably, in fact, going to go up. They're not going to go up here in London because, in general, the population of London is young and will stay young. People tend to come in when they're young and leave when they're uh, through, middle way through their life. But in rural areas, in particular, there's going to be a steady and very substantial increase in pneumonia over time. This is predictable 
just based on the demographics. Now, of these great causes of pneumonia, the most common uh, in terms of uh, cause of death uh, in both adults and children and cause of pneumonia in uh, adults is a bacteria called Streptococcus pneumoniae, the clue's in the title. And Streptococcus pneumoniae, which happens everywhere, everybody uh, will carry it uh, from time to time, usually causes an infection of one or more lobes of the lung. It is a lobar pneumonia. So what you can see, this is an x-ray straight on. This whited out patch, that's pneumonia. The rest of the lung is largely unaffected. And if you do the same thing in cross-section with a CT scan, what you can see again is the lobe full of pus and gunk with an air going through it, airway going through it, and the rest of the lung is largely unaffected. This is a lobar pneumonia. If people have more than one lobe, uh, the old-fashioned term for it was double pneumonia, and it sounded pretty dramatic, and sometimes, unfortunately, it was. The treatment for this, and if caught early, usually highly successful treatment for this, uh, is antibiotics. And uh, if you'd gone back 50 years ago, virtually all then available antibiotics would have had a significant impact on this. Uh, of course, the big threat we now face with antibiotics is antibiotic resistance. There are particular antibiotics we tend to use to treat this form of pneumonia. Uh, the penicillins in variety of uh, forms and the cephalosporins, which are another group with some similarities, have huge variation in the drug resistance across Europe, ranging from less than 1% up to more than 45%. The UK is in pretty good shape, actually, at roughly 5% resistance. And in the macrolide group of resistance, I've just uh, uh, shown a map here showing where in Europe the very high resistance rates are. But these forms of uh, transmission of, uh, sorry, these forms of drug resistance are spreading uh, because of the overuse of antibiotics. This is one of the reasons we are so keen to avoid antibiotics being overused. Alongside um, uh, antibiotic, uh, treatment with antibiotics, uh, we also have... Um, uh, vaccination. And vaccination uh, is uh, very uh, common. Uh, vaccination um, is uh, the new thing which is coming along and having quite a significant impact, but I want to be clear, not a, an overwhelming impact uh, on the, the death rate and the transmission from pneumococcal pneumonia. The first vaccine that was introduced in children here in the UK uh, in 2007 covered seven strains or seven types of the pneumococcal pneumonia. And that was introduced in children. And what we saw, these are children on the left under the age of two, is in the red line are the forms of pneumococcus which were covered by the vaccination. And they dropped off very rapidly. And overall, therefore, the total number of pneumococcal invasive cases, not all of these are pneumonia, but many of them are, began to decrease quite rapidly. But other forms of pneumococcus began to spread to take the place of the ones where the vaccine had been. Not taking the place completely, but uh, eroding some of the ground that we'd actually gained by using the vaccine. So uh, subsequently, in 2010, a new vaccine that covered now 13 strains of pneumococcus was introduced here in time, and what you can see here is the, uh, the um, green uh, strains, which are the additional ones, also decreased. Further decrease in the overall, the blue level here, 
Uh, but we continue to see an increase in the number of non-vaccine-related pneumococcal strains, demonstrating if you've got lots of different strains of an infection, if you get rid of some of them in the vaccination, some of them will then move into the ecological niche that's left behind. Now, what effect did this have on adults? Well, on the left is a simplified uh, graph, and if I showed this, you'd think it was absolutely amazing. You see in the uh, dotted line the effect on adults of children being vaccinated. Clear, be clear. This is the effect on adults of children being vaccinated, uh, older adults over the age of 65. Dramatic decrease in, firstly, the first vaccine available for pneumococcus, and then subsequently uh, a dramatic vaccine decrease uh, in the ones covered by the second vaccination. So it did what it was supposed to do. And it demonstrates that a large amount of the pneumococcus that elderly people get, they catch from children, directly or indirectly. So do encourage your neighbours to have their children vaccinated. It's good for you uh, as well. But as with the children, what we saw and we're still seeing is an increase, not making up the full ground, but making up some of it, in the vaccine strain, the strains that were not covered by vaccination. So that is the thing you have to be careful with the vaccination is that you can, you can make quite a lot of ground, but you may lose a little bit of it subsequently. Adults also get an additional vaccine that covers a much wider range of pneumococcus, but it's less effective than the childhood vaccination. It is important to have, and I would encourage everyone to have it, but it is less effective than the actual child vaccination if used on its own. Did this have an effect on, new, on, on pneumonia rates? And the answer is clearly yes. These data are from the USA, uh, which had a pretty similar approach. And what you can see is a significant reduction in the amount of, new, of uh, pneumococcal disease and pneumonia in young children, and a significant decrease in the amount of pneumonia in elderly adults. But a significant decrease to still a very high number. So even after vaccination... The vaccination has improved things, but you're still left with a lot of people who have got a significant amount of pneumonia going on. So a partial success with pneumococcus, an important one because it is so common, but I think it's not like many of the vaccines I've shown previously, which have essentially got rid of the problem completely. This is a major step forward, but it is not a complete victory. Turning to children... Uh, this is actually where the majority of the deaths uh, that are preventable uh, probably uh, exist. Uh, there are around uh, 700,000 deaths from pneumonia in the world, uh, and the darker the colour on this map, the uh, greater the incidence, the greater the proportion of people who get it under the age of five. And what you can see is that in wealthier countries, actually it's very rare for children to die of pneumococcal pneumonia, in uh, poorer countries or countries with developing health systems, uh, it is considerably more common. Let's, uh, cons before we move on to the pneumococcus itself, the additional thing you tend to get in children but not in adults so much is another bacteria called Haemophilus influenzae. Sounds like influenza the virus has got nothing to do with it. Uh, it's a bacteria. And uh, for those who came to my talk about uh, meningitis, uh, you'll remember that this was a major cause of meningitis in children. It is also a major cause of, pneumococcus, of, of uh, pneumonia in children. The good news about this, and this is in contrast to the uh, pneumococcal vaccine, is that the vaccine for this is incredibly effective. So on the top right here, what you can see is the number of cases we had of Haemophilus influenzae infection in the UK before vaccination, introduced the vaccination here, and it basically fell off a cliff. 
So pneumococcal uh, uh, problems have actually been largely eliminated. Uh, We now see roughly 20 cases a year of Hib in the UK. That's a vaccine response. So this is a highly effective vaccine. High-income countries deployed it first, but low-income countries, lower-income countries have now deployed it very widely in combination with a number of other uh, uh, infections. So you have a single shot, so-called pentavalent shot, covers all of these infections in one go, extraordinarily effective, and has largely got rid of haemophilus influenzae as a problem wherever it's deployed. And it is being deployed because there's an organisation called the Gavi Alliance, which is, uh, its central job is to make sure that vaccines get to children who need them in poorer countries. Uh, This is its coverage with pneumococcal vaccine in children, and this is its coverage with the Hib vaccine. And I'm very proud of the fact, I have to say as a British citizen, that the UK is one of the major contributors to this. This is leading to very substantial improvements in pneumonia in children and reductions in deaths worldwide. If we look at the under five deaths, the dark blue colours here are countries which have had massive reductions in childhood pneumonia, uh, and the light blue ones are ones where there's been significant reductions in childhood pneumonia. Only in a few countries, in the orange and yellow colours, has pneumonia rates actually gone up. So pneumococcal pneumonia and Hib pneumonia are now going down very rapidly in most developing countries through a combination of overall development better health services, and vaccination. And the result of this has been remarkable. It's not just vaccines that have done that, I want to be clear, but if you look, this is the uh, age, the number of deaths on the left here in children under the age of five, in red in 1970, uh, in blue in 2000, and in green in 2016. That is the most astonishing public health achievement probably in history an amazing reduction in childhood mortality. And if you look at the attributable fraction of the major things that have done this, the reduction in pneumonia is the number one cause that has contributed to this remarkable improvement. There are also important uh, things like reductions in measles, another vaccine-preventable disease, reductions in malaria. But uh, pneumonia is probably the single biggest change that has led to this dramatic fall. Pneumococcus and Hib are not the only two things that can cause pneumonia. Um, There are in adults a group of diseases that are grouped together called the atypical pneumonias. They're atypical for a variety of reasons, partly because you can't grow them in ordinary cultures in the lab, partly because unlike the pneumococcal pneumonia, which you remember was was in particular lobes, they tend to affect the entire lung. Uh, So this is someone who's actually got an atypical pneumonia. It's whited out slightly everywhere rather than completely in one place. And there are several of them, the three I put up here, mycoplasma, uh, chlamydiophilia, also known as chlamydia, uh, and legionella, are probably the three most in common, uh, most common. They cause problems in the uh, lung. They can also problem, cause problems with the skin, uh, the joints, uh, and the gut. Different antibiotics are used to treat this. And for that reason, if you come into hospital with severe pneumonia, because people may not initially be sure is it pneumococcal or not, you'll usually get two antibiotics classes, one class to cover pneumococcus, and the other class to cover this group of infections. That's the reason you get two. And there are particular risk factors for these. For Legionnaire's disease, for example, which many of you may have read about in uh, newspapers because there are outbreaks from time to time, hotel water supplies are a classic place to find them. Uh, hot tubs and spa pools like this, uh, if you insist on going there, there's a minor risk. 
Uh, and uh, for people who like uh, parrots, uh, budgerigars, pigeons, or indeed wild birds, uh, there's a disease group called, cyst- uh, called cytokosis. And there was a significant, for example, epidemic of this in uh, the USA, uh, introduced by uh, a craze for parrots. For all of these, there is no deployable vaccine. So this is a different group of pneumonias that are bacterial. Viruses make up a much a small, a large proportion of pneumonia numerically, but a much smaller proportion of the deaths. Uh, and this is just everything that I've starred in yellow uh, is a virus. Everything in blue is a bacteria in terms of how common it is. Putting exact numbers on this can be quite difficult, but there are two viruses it's probably worth just highlighting. The first is a group, a virus group called respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. It's the most important uh, childhood mortality cause from a virus uh, globally, probably costs, causes between 5 and 7% of child pneumonia deaths. And this is clearly something for which we need to develop a vaccine, but currently do not have one. So this is a very, very prominent vaccine target. And of course, influenza, uh, which we all know about, can cause a viral pneumonia. And that varies by season, as you all know, tends to be very much in this part of the year, Uh, and by year. Some years a lot of it, some years not. And within that, some uh, influenza is much more virulent, much more likely to cause pneumonia than others. So the proportion of influenza that gets pneumonia will vary by year. When we get very bad uh, influenza, you can then go on to have the initial inflammation of the lung from the virus. That then settles down and subsequently, you get a bacterial uh, pneumonia, which may come on 10 days or 14 days afterwards. And if you go back to the great flu pandemic of 1918, so just over 100 years ago, the last, uh, apart from HIV, the last massive pandemic we have faced with big mortality killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million people uh, over the space of two years, quite astonishing mortality. Uh, a large proportion of that death was caused by people who appeared to be getting better from their flu and subsequently went on to get a bacterial pneumonia. With modern antibiotics, many of those people would probably have survived, but in the very young and the very old, some clearly would not. And then of the classical groups of pneumonia, the final group are the fungal lung infections. Um, These infect a lot of us the whole time, but actually your immune system will just deal with them And in general, you're fairly unlikely to uh, get a fungal pneumonia. Relatively few of you will know someone who's had a fungal pneumonia. Everyone here will know someone who's had a bacterial pneumonia, whether you know they've had it or not. It will be uh, true. Uh, And in broad terms, there's some fungi which have particular geographical ranges. So this is a CDC map uh, from the USA showing which fungi can cause pneumonias in different parts of the USA. So some of them it's just to do with where you are. And some of them, it's to do with what you do. So, for example, there are particular fungi which are associated with crawling through caves with bats, if that's what you find entertaining. Uh, And there are other fungi which are associated with composting, uh, which I suspect is a rather more common uh, pastime for um, uh, people in London. So those are the pneumonias. The next very large group and a very important group historically and now is tuberculosis, still one of the top 10 causes of deaths worldwide, although in many countries, a very, very small proportion of its its former self. It was common absolutely everywhere. 
And again, if you go back, uh, it's very much associated with the arts. It's associated with the arts for two reasons, actually. The first of which is quite a large number of the major artists I've just uh, chosen to uh, uh, show this uh, with Keats, uh, D.H. Lawrence, Emily Bronte and Orwell, but I could have chosen many others. They all died of TB. So it had an impact that way. It also, because it leads to a lingering death, is absolutely perfect for operatic scores. <laughs> uh, and so you'll see that the uh, heroines in La Boheme, La Traviata and Moulin Rouge, for example, all die while singing, astonishingly, uh, whilst uh, of uh, TB. But it is not an historical oddity. Uh, in 2017, around 10 million people uh, caught TB uh, and 1.6 million people died from it, according to WHO data. Uh, and importantly, because these clearly must have caught it recently, uh, an estimated million children became ill with TB uh, and almost a quarter of a million died. So this is still a very near and present danger for us. There are three very major drivers of TB. The first is poverty, and that's through a combination of malnutrition, crowding and poor health services in general. The second is HIV, and if you have HIV disease, even before you get to the point of having AIDS, advanced HIV disease, your risk of TB goes up. In people who've got advanced HIV, the risk is 20 to 30 times more likely than people without HIV. Uh, and then drug resistance, which I'll come on to. There are, of course, some particular groups who are particularly, have particular risks. People in prisons tend to be high rates, including in places like the USA, and people who are involved in mining, for example, the gold mines in South Africa. But if you look at TB in the world it tends to be concentrated in places that have got one, or in the case of HIV and poverty, two or more of these problems. TB, uh, classically in the lung, can present in a variety of ways, and these are three of the really classical ones. Most trained doctors would look at any one of these x-rays and you said, what is it? They'd say TB without having to do any further tests. Uh, obviously, they need to prove it, but uh, these are relatively classical presentations. One is... A, what looks like an upper lobe pneumonia. TB tends to concentrate in the upper bit of the lung. The second is uh, a uh, cavity. So what you can see here is something that looks like a ping pong ball. That's a classic presentation of TB. And third of which is this very destructive disease, which you tend to get with more advanced, age, uh, more advanced uh, TB. Now, what actually happens with TB is very many people uh, are infected with TB. Uh, I've worked on lots of TB wards. I'm very confident I've been exposed to and had TB bacilli go into my lung multiple times. Most people who work in uh, uh, poorer countries will tend to do that. Uh, what then happens is the infection gets down to the alveolus, and then what happens is that the immune system surrounds it and walls it off in the great majority of cases. So what you get is the TB's inside here, and then it's walled off by the immune system rushing in and trying to prevent it from causing further problems. This is what's called latent TB, and maybe a quarter of the world's population have this, including, I would guess, quite a large proportion of people who've worked in Africa, Asia, or Latin America uh, as they were developing. Without HIV or treatment, two things, HIV would increase this risk, treatment would decrease it. Around 5% of these people will develop disease in the first couple of years, and around 5% will develop disease subsequently, meaning, of course, that 90% of them will never go on to get TB at any point. They've been infected, they don't get on to get, go on to get the disease. But then uh, in those cases where it, where it manages to escape from this, 
And this may be due to age, as people grow older. It may be due to drugs. They might be started on steroids or uh, chemotherapy. It might be due to uh, malnutrition uh, in uh, uh, certain situations. They, the TB comes out again. And there may be a lot of TB, so-called open TB. You look down at someone's sputum, you can see the bacilli uh, as on the top right here. Or uh, it may be what's called smear-negative TB, you culture TB several weeks later, but you can't see it down the microscope. In general, the open TB is, is the most dangerous, uh, kills the most people, and is also by far the most infectious. Now, in the period before we had treatment, um, the rate of mortality from smear-positive TB, these are people where you can see it down the microscope, was somewhere between 30 and 80%, probably typically 70% over 10 years. This is what leads to uh, something like tra- La Traviata. A gradual death, wasting away, consumption, again, the name's in the title, uh, and uh, finally uh, dying. Smear negative mortality, much lower, around 20%. Still significant, but the immune system in smear negative is much more on top of the problem. And before we had drugs, really the only treatment we had which was effective was to surgically remove a bit of the lung to collapse the lung, deliberately to put a hole in so that the lung collapsed on itself, or what's called plombage, where you basically put stuff into the chest to compress the lung. So this uh, person here has probably had ping-pong balls put into their chest to compress the lung so it'll then scar up and hold the TB in check. There was also uh, quite a significant uh, enthusiasm for putting people up mountains, which may or may not have been good for them, probably quite pleasant, uh, and putting them in caves, which I'm confident was not good for them. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, they had it done to them. Uh, now, the key to TB treatment is drugs. And we don't just use one drug. What everybody gets is either three or four, typically four drugs, taken observed. And the reason for observing it is that seems tends to lead to people being much more likely to take their drugs. And you don't have, a, to have to have a nurse or a doctor doing it. You can get a member of the family to actually do this, what's called directly observed therapy. And in the great majority of cases, that will cure the TB extraordinarily effectively after about a six-month course. But the first thing is you've got to diagnose it. The cases I showed you with the classical TB, anyone can see the X-ray, you can see that's TB, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, But if you have the problem, the first problem you have is microscopy has very low sensitivity. If you look at sputum, often you'll miss it. Uh, And uh, we have developed several new methods now for diagnosing TB, which is a big step forward. They include things like looking in the urine with dipsticks, quite similar to pregnancy tests, uh, and they involve more high-end gene probe tests, where you put some sputum in and do gene probes, which will tell you both you've got TB and whether it's drug-resistant, an amazing advance. The but in this is where most TB is in the world, these are not available. So our technology is improving on diagnosis, but it's not necessarily getting to where most people live. The big problem, however, for us with TB is drug resistance. And this is just two uh, maps, one of which on the left is showing the proportion of TB that is drug resistant at first presentation. So this person has caught TB that is drug resistant. They haven't taken drugs themselves. They've caught it from someone else and it's drug resistant. As you can see, very significantly raised rates, for example, in Eastern Europe and the former USSR uh, in Russia. And this is a slightly different way of presenting it. This is the total number of people with multi-drug resistance. And this is because the numbers are so big, you can see very large amounts in East and South Asia. So there's a lot of drug-resistant TB out there. 
which can then be spread to other people. But inevitably, this is even higher if someone has had TB, been treated and then failed. And for these kind of areas, you can get rates of uh, multi-drug resistance or drug resistance of over 50%. Now, if you had lots and lots of drugs and they were all cheap, that would not be a major problem. But if you look up here, the cost of multi-drug treatment is about 200 times that for sensitive drugs. And the drugs are not as good, to be clear. And if you look at US costs, which are admittedly at the high end globally, the average person being treated for multidrug resistant TB is £134,000 in drug costs. Uh, and if you went on to what's called XDR, which is very uh, um, drug resistant, uh, you'd be talking about close to half a million dollars uh, on drug costs, compared to about 17000 elsewhere. Clearly unaffordable in the very large parts of the world where these, uh, this, this is a problem. And these drug costs, you would have thought, would start going down because many of these drugs are old. That is not as what has happened. Drug costs on the, on the left, uh, what we have is the drug cost in 2001, and on the right, drug costs in 2011 for the second-line drugs. These drugs are actually going up in price. Something important to say about the market there. Now, it's definitely not inevitable the proportion of MDR-TB, multidrug-resistant TB, is going to go up, but it's likely globally. There's been very good progress in parts of Eastern Europe. It's improved a lot. It's now stable in the UK. This is the proportion of uh, TB that's drug-resistant, so it's not increasing here. Um, uh, and the good news in the, in the UK is that TB as a whole is decreasing very rapidly. There's been a 38% drop in new TB diagnoses from 2011 to 2017. So we are getting on top of TB, but I want to be clear, diagnosis is difficult and drug resistance is spreading globally. So there are risks here. We can vaccinate against TB. There is a vaccine, BCG. Almost all of you will have had this. It's about the oldest and most widely available vaccine. It's moderately good. It's very effective at, producing, at preventing severe TB in children in high-income settings. That's the good news. And so trials that were done in the UK, for example, here, where this line is no difference at all, show significant improvement. It is not, however, very effective in adults, in low-income settings. Here's a trial done, for example, in India, uh, and in lung TB. So BCG is an OK vaccine. It's worth having, but we certainly need to improve on it. There have been multiple attempts to get new vaccines. So far, none of them have yet significantly improved on BCG in big field trials. So this is another area where we need better vaccination. And the final way in which TB can cause significant problems uh, in, within the lung uh, is what's called miliary TB. This is when the TBs escape from the immune system completely. And instead of actually being in particular parts of the lung, it's absolutely heaving with TB throughout the lung, and usually it's in the spleen, the liver, the gut, uh, and in various other parts of the body. Here's uh, a, a cross-sectional view with a CT scan. This is very dangerous. Untreated mortality, almost 100%. Even with good treatment, in a low-resource setting, 30% will die, and in a high-resource setting, 2%. This is, a, this is the most dangerous form of TB that affects the lung. The other uh, thing you can get with TB is TB can get into the space between the lung and the chest wall, what's called a pleural effusion. And this isn't in the lobe in the lung. This is fluid 
around the lung caused by TB. That is the effusion. It's, the most, uh, it's not infectious. Um, it doesn't, can't infect other people. But um, it is a uh, significant risk if it's not treated. But treat, after it's treated, the outlook is generally very good. It's particularly a risk in people who've got HIV disease. So TB can affect the lung in multiple ways. It can have the very localised area. It can have a kind of pneumonia-like presentation. It can have the miliary TB. Each of those is getting more and more, uh, less and less of the immune system. And it can have this thing, the pleural effusion, which compresses the lung with fluid. Two other groups before I move on to the heart. Outside your lung, you actually have your rib cage and your muscles, and they're just as important for you to breathe because you've got your diaphragm and your ribs have got to move to pump the air in and out of the lungs. Last time uh, I gave a lecture here, I talked about, and that I'm therefore not going to go into this in any great detail, a variety of important diseases which cause paralysis of the motor nervous system, either by making it stop working completely, uh, for example, botulinum toxin, botulinum uh, infection, uh, or uh, by causing it to spasm, as on the right, or by damaging nerves. Here are polio sufferers. They're inside the old-fashioned iron lungs because their respiration muscles have completely ceased to function. So the way in which these diseases actually kill people is by stopping them breathing because their muscles no longer work. So infections in the lung, infections around the lung, and infections of the musculature, uh, which affect the musculature uh, to stop people breathing. In most of my talks so far, I've talked quite a lot about parasites. I'm not going to talk much about parasites, about the lung. There is one parasite that makes its home in the human lung. Uh, it's a rather beautiful uh, parasite, actually, called Paragonimus westermanii. It's not particularly dangerous. Uh, if you like, if you're a parasitologist, you like it. Um, uh, it uh, affects, infects snails. The snails get eaten by crabs or crayfish, uh, and the crayfish get eaten by humans in things like this dish, drunken crab, not cooked. And if you don't cook your crab, uh, then you get the infection and infects your lung, and then you get the lung. It's rather light TB. You get a hole in the lung. You cough up sputum with the eggs. The sputum is coughed into the pools where the snails live, uh, and the cycle goes round. The way to stop this parasite, which is, as I say, not massively dangerous, uh, is to cook your food, basically. More dangerous, and uh, this is a disease which can occur, here's another infection I've talked about in other settings. This is the uh, sheep uh, dog cycle, mainly in, in sheep farming areas. It's a sheep um, dog tapeworm. Uh, and the form that gets into the sheep can also infect humans, and it's something called hydatid disease, and it can cause massive parasites in the lung. These genuinely can be quite dangerous, because if they burst, people can have a massive, what's called anaphylactic reaction. They can have a huge allergic reaction to the contents of this thing, which is the size of a large orange. Have to be removed surgically. Fortunately, very rare. And then there are several worms which pass through the lung without causing much damage. In fact, most of the major worms use, uh, many of the major worms use the lung as part of their system for reasons that, in my view, are not biologically obvious. So, for example, this fellow, uh, Ascaris uh, lumbricoides, uh, roundworm, uh, you swallow it, it penetrates your gut, it goes up to the liver, it goes up to the lung, hangs around for a bit, then penetrates the lung, and then crawls up or is escalated up the mucociliary escalator, and you swallow it again, and then it infects you. Why? I don't know. But anyway, it does. So, and it does this without doing you very much harm. 
Uh, this one uh, on the left, hookworm, you catch from walking in a place where someone has uh, defecated. Uh, I'm not going to go through the details of it too much. Uh, you tread in that area, you get infected through your skin. It then goes up to the lung, penetrates the lung, goes up through the lung, you swallow it, and the cycle completes. But actually, these things don't do you much harm when they go through the lung, so I'm not going to go into them in any great detail. A shorter section of this talk, I want now to talk about the heart. The heart infections are much less common than the lung ones, but they are very often extremely dangerous. The, lung, the heart, obviously, absolutely essential to pumping blood around the body. And heart infections can occur several ways. The first way is they can infect the valves, which are the way that means that the flow of blood goes in one direction. This is called endocarditis. I'll come on to the, these, order these bar one in some detail, a bit more detail. The second way they can do is they can affect the muscle. This is called myocarditis. The muscle ceases to function because of the infection. The third thing they can do is they can affect the way in which the heart beats. They can stop the heart beating with a good rhythm. They can slow it down. Uh, in a few cases, they can even make it stop completely. Then there's a lining around the heart called the pericardial sac, and they can cause uh, a build-up of fluid in that or they can cause inflammation of that. That's called pericarditis or pericardial effusion. Uh, and they can also cause heart attacks. Finally, historically, they could cause significant inflammation of this arch of the aorta as it leaves the heart. The reason I'm not going to talk about that is largely gone away. It was a form of tertiary syphilis. It occurred late in syphilis. Uh, I haven't seen a case uh, for many years. Start off with endocarditis. About 1 in 30,000 people get endocarditis, but it's not random in the population. There are two groups of risk factors. The first group of risk factor is, is there something structurally uh, abnormal about your heart? So artificial heart valves. This, for example, is an artificial heart valve uh, inside this heart here on this X-ray. They're like, more likely to get infected. Congenital heart abnormalities increase the risk. Uh, and if you have uh, a cardiomyopathy where your uh, heart uh, is uh, rather baggy and not working op operating normally, that can also risk, uh, risk, cause a risk for this, uh, infectious, this infectious group. So heart problems can make it more likely. And then you have things which make it likely that a bacteria gets into your blood that's going to go and sit on the heart valve. And the classic things to do that are going to hospital because hospitals like decorating you with intravenous lines. They basically put a piece of tubing from, the, from your skin, which has got lots of bacteria on it, into your blood, uh, and then hope for the best. Um, intravenous drug use, for those people who choose to intravenously actually inject themselves, it's not a good idea for multiple reasons. Um, dentistry can do it because you, the drill, uh, when someone's drilling, or indeed when people are descaling and things, can lead to showers of bacteria in the blood. Uh, and surgery are classic ways. And what you get is you get an infection on the heart valves like this. And the infection itself can be dangerous, or the infection can actually eat through the heart valve and lead to it rupturing, meaning the heart ceases to function as a pump. And you need to go into emergency surgery, very high risk in the context of someone who's got active infection. Now, which bug and which treatment you need depend on the setting. Uh, endocarditis can overall just cause a fever. That can be the only thing you can get. It can cause little emboli. And here are some examples. These are what are called splinter hemorrhages. And you can see them in the nail folds. And some of those can go flick, flick up into the brain and cause strokes. So this is a, endocarditis is one of the things you think about. If someone comes in with a stroke and you're a bit surprised, 
one of the things you think about, and it can cause significant skin lesions. It could look quite similar, actually, uh, to people who've got meningococcal disease, uh, meningococcal sepsis. And what bug it is will depend what it was that was your risk factor. If it was, for example, in hospital with an intravenous line, it'll usually be a skin bug, and the most common is something called Staphylococcus aureus. If it was caused by dental things, it'll be this, uh, probably most commonly this bacteria, Streptococcus viridans. It's in your mouth, and therefore you get showers of that. It's likely to, land, if it's going to cause problems, land on your heart valve. And if it's uh, from the gut, in people who've got inflammation of the gut, got, in some cases, uh, gut cancers, they can get this thing, Streptococcus bovis, another kind of infection. So what you grow with endocarditis usually tells you what it is that was the risk for them getting the endocarditis in the first place. And then in people who are very immunosuppressed, particularly who are on chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant, they can get a fungal form called candida. The treatment for all of the bacterial forms is prolonged antibiotics, and about 20% will need to go on to have surgery. High risk, as I say, in this context. If I'd been giving this talk uh, 100 years ago, I would have spent a huge amount of time on the next disease group, rheumatic heart disease, a major cause of the risk for endocarditis. Rheumatic fever is something which follows on from a group A streptococcal throat or skin infection. And about 3% of people who have this infection and are not treated with antibiotics will go on to get this. It used to be incredibly common. If you look back at the records of Great Ormond Street, the, made the famous teaching uh, children's hospital just up the road, uh, between uh, the second and fourth most common for admission, cause for admission in Great Ormond Street uh, was this thing, uh, Sydenham's career, also more widely known as St Vitus's Dance. This is a wild jerking movement that people get after they get this infection, which uh, is a sign that they have got uh, rheumatic fever. And what rheumatic fever is, you get the infection, seem to improve, and then you get this sick group of problems, which include problems with the joints, this jerking movement, St Vitus's dance, Sydenham's career, uh, and problems with the joints. And it's an immune damage. So your immune system is fighting the infection, and in the process of fighting the infection, it fights you. And one of the things it can damage is the heart valves. And in particular, it damages a valve called the mitral valve. And this, in, over many years, so this can cause problems decades later, causes heart failure uh, and the, a, the rhythm disturbance called atrial fibrillation. Used to be incredibly common in the UK. is still common in other parts of the world. If we look globally, about 30 million people are affected by this. Uh, and this is the uh, map. Again, red is bad news uh, on this map. Very strong link to poverty. So used to be common in the UK. The reason we don't have it is mainly because we're not poor as a society. And if you look geographically within a country, it'll cluster in urban areas where there are pockets of poverty. This is the UK uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, this is in women. Um, red is bad in this situation. Here's India. Red is also bad. And just uh, what I thought I would also, this is the rheumatic fever, and in here, what I thought I would just show is stroke. Atrial fibrillation is a major risk for stroke. Valve disease is a major risk for stroke. If you have rheumatic fever, your risk of stroke significantly goes up. So this is a way in which uh, infections indirectly can, many years later, cause uh, a cardiovascular problem. Fortunately, 
mainly due to development but also due to antibiotics, rheumatic fever is going down quite rapidly in most parts of the world. This is the U- on, the, on the left is the USA. Really almost uh, extraordinarily rare to see it now. It does still happen. And on the right, every area of the world where uh, red is where we were in 1990 and blue is where we are in 200, 2015. It's not gone away, but in each area of the world, it's improved. So that's heart valves, rheumatic fever. Then you have things which affect the muscle of the heart. And this is what's called myocarditis, inflammation of the muscle. And the most common cause for this is, causes for this are viral. Many viruses can do this, a few bacteria. I've listed them uh, on the slide here. Um, the great majority of people who get this inflammation of the heart muscle, which can happen after many infections, will make a full recovery. Many of them won't even know they've had it. Probably several people in the audience may have had a mild version of this at some point. But in some people, it can go on to cause really bad inflammation. And particularly in young adults, it's one of the significant reasons why young adults can have cardiac arrests or very major heart problems. So it's generally rare, but in a young adult who don't have all the problems that happen in older age, this is a significant proportion of sudden deaths. So up to 20% of sudden deaths, which are not due to accidents, which are just due to the heart stopping, will be due to this thing, myocarditis, due to many causes. And you can get two forms of myocarditis. You can get inflammation during the infection, and then several weeks later, you can get an inflammation after the infection, which is an immune response. So you can get it two different points of the cycle. Alongside that... Some infections can cause toxins, which can also damage the heart. Uh, And uh, the most important of these is diphtheria. Again, I'm not going to talk about this at length because I covered it in the last uh, lecture. But the toxins, which can cause problems in the nerves, can also damage the heart muscle. And they can also lead to problems with the heart rhythm by uh, by blocking the heart rhythm so that you don't actually get uh, the heart beating at the right rate. If you treat people for this, uh, it will usually recover, but not invariably. You may temporarily need to put a pacemaker in. But it's important to understand it can be fatal if they get heart problems with diphtheria. And the depressing thing about this is diphtheria is a completely preventable disease. This is a disease entirely caused by a toxin which a vaccination will completely get rid of the risk. So where vaccination has occurred, diphtheria has, for practical purposes, disappeared. Finally, in the muscle, um, there is a parasitic infection, which is important in the places important, is not important in many other places. And the places important is Latin America. In Latin America, there's a parasite, this parasite, trypanosome. It's got some similarities to African sleeping sickness, but behaves completely differently as a disease. And it's passed on by this rather handsome bug. There's a variety of species that can do it, but they're all similar in their style. There's a human biting bug. The way it passes it on, actually, is it bites you, tends to live in crevices in the walls, uh, and uh, it comes out, bites you, particularly at night, defecates on you, you scratch yourself, and you scratch the bug feces into your skin, and that's what causes the infection. It's zoonosis, it occurs in animals, so we're not going to get rid of it because it's got a a wild population. It's actually the most common cause of cardiomyopathy other than heart uh, 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 ischemia uh, in Latin America still. 
Uh, so about 5.7 million people in 21 countries have this disease called Chagas disease. Uh, and of those, 20 to 30% will get a cardiomyopathy. Treatment's not great at the moment, although it's improving quite significantly. Fortunately, the case numbers are going down quite fast. And the biggest impact on this is actually better housing. Housing without cracks, basically, it makes it much less likely people will have this. It's not going to happen in big urban areas. But this is the parasite nestling in the heart, the, the muscles of the heart. So viral causes, uh, uh, bacterial causes, diphtheria, and parasitic causes. The, uh, the bug which passes on Chagas disease in Latin America is not the only insect which can, or at least transmission vector, which can cause a bacterial zoonotic infection. And uh, an important one, which can, in rare cases, cause problems with the heart, is Lyme disease. Uh, much overhyped in parts of the more breathless parts of the media, but still a significant problem nonetheless. Around 1% of people who get Lyme disease, which is passed on by ticks uh, in a variety of parts uh, of the world, particularly the eastern seaboard of the USA and bits of Central Europe, but it's, it can happen else, in, elsewhere, including the UK, 1% uh, of them will get problems of the heart, uh, and a classic thing you can get with this is what's called heart block. Normally what you get is the impulses from the top of the heart are passed down uh, a, a fibre pathway to lead to synchronised beating of first the atrium at the top of the heart and then the ventricles below that. When you get heart block, that gets blocked halfway through. Transmission doesn't occur. So you get the little bouncy things along here. That's the atrium beating and then the ventricle beats unrelated to that because it's basically completely escaped from uh, control because it's been blocked at this point. And Lyme disease can cause this. Fortunately, if you treat it, it goes away. Excellent news. But occasionally people temporarily need a pacemaker to get them through uh, until the end. And uh, finally, in terms of the structures of the heart, Around the heart, you can get infections can lead to uh, swelling with fluid that builds up around the heart. And the classic thing that can cause this again is TB. And this fluid can, break, can build up to the point where it presses on the heart and stops the heart from actually beating properly. Basically, the heart dies of, well, is, is stopped by or made inefficient by constriction of the fluid. And if you don't treat it rapidly with infect, anti-infectives and steroids, the sac around the heart can then get uh, uh, inflamed and can scar down and can constrict the heart. So structures in the valves, the rhythm of the heart, of the muscle, and then in the area around the heart can all cause heart failure. Finally, an area which has been very significantly underplayed. I think until recently, most doctors, and I suspect actually even still, most doctors do not realise quite what a high proportion of heart attacks occur as a result of an infection of various sorts, of which the most common causes are going to be uh, infections of the lung in most settings. So this is a paper that came out literally three or four weeks ago, and there's a lot of them coming out at the moment. Among patients who are hospitalised with pneumococcal pneumonia, right back to the beginning of this talk, the incidence of myocardial infarction is 7 to 8%. So this is a very, very common cause. People who've got, who've got slightly furred up arteries of their, their heart get an infection, causes inflammation, and the inflammation leads to a breakdown, and that leads 
to the heart going into a cardiac arrest, sorry, a myocardial infarction, uh, heart, and, uh, heart attack, and a few of them uh, will go on to have significant problems. And there's also clear evidence of risks of heart disease after almost every infection people have looked. So infections as a pathway to cardiovascular disease, particularly as a, co- a cause of uh, myocardial infarction, heart attacks, and strokes, is increasingly recognised. And one of the reasons we need to reduce infections in older people is actually to stop them dying of heart attacks weeks, or in some cases, years later. The the effect of an infection in terms of risk of heart attack extends right out uh, for, in some cases, years. So very important to try and prevent these. So in summary, we're making substantial progress against the infections of the diseases of the lung and heart. Uh, Rapid reductions in bacterial pneumonia, particularly in children, but uh, a gradual reduction in TB globally, but uh, it's going to be slow, and drug resistance is a significant risk. There are very many of the old enemies, the things we would have talked about had this talk been given 50 years ago, diphtheria, rheumatic heart disease, chagas, which are largely gone, uh, or at least are going. But I think it is important to acknowledge that in contrast to some of the other infections I've talked about, where essentially I was able to say, this is on its way out, we are probably the last generation, it'll be a major problem. Pneumonia will remain a significant risk in the elderly uh, for the rest of our lifetimes and probably well beyond. And in heart infections will remain a rare but significant hazard. Thank you very much. <laughs>